Hi everyone, Kathleen Dillon here. As many of you may know, tomorrow is Veterans Day, so here at Stern Chats we wanted to take the time to recognize the contributions and perspectives of some of the veterans here on campus at Stern. A couple days ago, I had the opportunity to sit down with three of my veteran classmates, Asher Eddy, who served in the National Guard, Natalie Ashbridge, who served in the Marine Corps, and Bennett Adams, who served in the Army. During our conversation, we chatted about what it was like to be in the military, what it was like to deploy, and what it was like to hang up the uniform for a final time and make a transition outside the military and into business school. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did, and thank you to the men and women who have served and continue to serve our country in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. From New York University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. So very excited for this conversation. And I think what might be helpful for our listeners is just to kick it off. um, If you could each give us a brief overview of your time in service, what you've been focusing on during your time at Stern and what you're hoping to go into after school. Um, Bennett, we'll start with you. Sure. Uh, So I was uh, in the military for about eight years. Uh, I got in in 2010. Um, my first job was I was a I was a medical evacuation platoon leader uh, out at the First Infantry Division in Fort Riley, Kansas, which was great. They were like, "Yeah, A, you're going to Kansas, and also B, you're going to Baghdad," which is which is a great uh, one-two combination. Uh, so got to um, uh, deploy to Baghdad, ran a medevac outfit out there, came back from that, had a couple different jobs out at Fort Riley. And then in 2013, I went to assessment and selection for civil affairs to get into the special operations community. Um, from there, uh, got in from there, went to Fort Bragg and was there from 2013 to 2015. Spent most of my time as a team leader, uh, civil affairs team leader in Special Operations Command Europe. Uh, deployed twice with them to the Republic of Georgia. My kind of area of focus was, was the caucuses. Um, and then ended up getting out in 2018. Uh, so had a had kind of a gap year where I was a I edited a startup out in Silicon Valley, and then before getting into Stern, um, you know, at, at Stern I've been focusing on you know, tech, fintech, finance. Uh, I did an internship at Emerging Markets Finance uh, firm uh, over the summer, and. Uh, as for what I plan to get into, I'd love to work there, uh, but we'll see if it is, it is a startup. So that's how those things are. Um, but um, for now, looking at finance, looking at emerging markets, also toying around with the idea of another startup. So kind of brings us up to the present, I suppose. Awesome. Natalie? Um, yeah. So I was in the Marine Corps for four years. Um, I joined in 2011, a couple months after graduating from college. And I was a logistics officer stationed out in 29 Palms, California. Um, my unit uh, deployed to Afghanistan in 2014 as part of the drawdown and retrograde of U.S. forces and equipment. Um, so I spent a lot of my time um, in the three shops, so primarily uh, short-term um, planning and execution um, for ev- um, any kind of movements on or off base on deployment. 
Um, I got back. I was briefly the landing support platoon commander. And then I finished out my time in the Marine Corps as the assistant logistics officer um, for the battalion. I got out um, late 2015 and I worked for a year and a half um, at a privately owned industrial parts warehouse, a privately owned industrial parts supplier as a warehouse supervisor. And then I most recently spent almost two years at Comcast where I um, developed business process for new Ethernet product launches. Um, I came to Stern because I've always known I've wanted to go back to school. Um, ended up recruiting for management consulting, and I will. I signed a summer offer with Deloitte, and I'll be going back there um, full time in their strategy and operations practice out of the New York office. Um, so, very excited for that. Um, and then within Stern, I've been involved um, in the. MVC, and I'm also working on developing programming for um, the Leadership Accelerator. And Asher. Sure. So in 2009, I joined Army National Guard. Uh, I was doing my undergrad at North Carolina State University, and so participated in the RTC program out there, graduated, became a finance officer. Uh, 2015, became a commander of a unit in North Carolina. 2016, promoted to captain. Um, 2017, I got called up to deploy to Qatar. Um, so, you know, did that. Came back 2018. I was like, all right, you know, that was fun, but time for something new. Time to pivot. Start looking at MBA programs. And so the day I got the call from Stern was the day that I actually submitted my resignation to the Guard. Um, kind of interesting day for sure. Uh, here at Stern, focusing on finance and accounting, uh, also strategy. Career pivot, you know, would be investment banking. That's what I'm, you know, headed to next year. And then, meanwhile, I was working in the army prior to Stern. I was in capital markets here in New York, so I was a capital markets analyst for a company named IHS Market. Great, and actually, I think what is interesting about your background that is a bit. Um, in contrast to Natalie and Bennett that were full-time officers is that you were in the National Guard. So before your deployment, you were working full-time in corporate America and then got those orders to deploy. I imagine that was a pretty um, kind of a stark transition to go through, to go from corporate America one day to completely immersed in a deployment in Qatar the next day. Um, can you talk a little bit about that process? What is that like going to your supervisor and telling them, you know, I got orders to deploy, I'm leaving. And and can you walk us through that transition process? Yeah, it's a good question. Because it was it's definitely challenging to, to wear, you know, the two hats constantly and balance being in the garden and, and working a civilian career. Because your civilian career, you know, it's going to pay the bills, but the National Guard is going to have the final say because you're under contract. So even though it's like a side hustle, you know, one week in a month, two weeks in the summer, you know, if they say like, hey, we need you at XYZ location by Friday, guess what? You need to be there by Friday. And as you become an officer and you kind of, you know, rise to the ranks, you run out of kind of excuses. You need to be at everything. So it's hard to get, a, get out of things as I was, you know, going from second lieutenant to first lieutenant to captain. And so, you know, let's go back to 2017. I had just moved to New York. Um, to start at IHS and, you know, heads down, I'm working real hard. I'm killing it. Managers told me they plan on promoting me to senior analyst. So I'm like, all right, you know, I like, this, this is good. And in June, like mid June, I get a call. It's okay, like, hey, uh, Captain Eddie, um, we got some news for you. Uh, we want you to deploy. 
to, to Qatar. We'll take, you know, take your unit to, to the Qatar. And I'm like, all right, you know, when, you know, when do you need me there? September, October? They're like, no, we need you back down here in two weeks. I'm like, two weeks? I said, two weeks. So, you know, what followed was an incredibly awkward conversation with my manager. Because, again, they had just kind of, you know, relocated me to the New York office from Raleigh in January. And so they're, you know, under the impression that I'm going to be there for the long term. And so, you know, I'm walking her through like the news and she's like, okay, well, you know, do you really have to go? And I'm like, yes, it's, it's not really, you know, negotiable. I don't really have a choice in the matter. Like I have to leave in two weeks. That was the last time my manager and I spoke. So for the remainder of two weeks, she just gave me the silent treatment, which was, you know, a bit uncomfortable, but it is what it is. I think what it taught me is that, you know, I was at a fork in the road and I had to make a, a choice on what path to pursue. It's either, you know, from that point, I go full army and I just, you know, try and find like a full-time job in the military or I get out and try and pursue civilian, you know, interests because it will be hard to continue to balance both because at some point it's going to like put a hindrance on my ability to rise through the ranks on a civilian side. I have to continuously do things with the military. Hmm. And I appreciate your candor around kind of the difficulty and awkwardness of that conversation. And when I think about whether a military member transitioning from the military into corporate America or someone that is in the National Guard, like as you were, um, trying to balance both of those things, is there anything that can be done, whether it's the veteran doing a better job at translating their experience um, or communicating certain things about their experience or something on the kind of the corporate America supervisor recruiter side about understanding more about the military experience that can kind of bridge that divide and bring those two sides together. Um, Cause I do think the veteran experience is so important to corporate America. Um, yeah. Any thoughts on improving that relationship? Yeah. I think the number one thing is just to be transparent as possible and upfront in regards to what the requirements are. I think normally when companies, you know, get veterans, you know, applying to positions, they're usually out of the military. And so when they're interacting with National Guardsmen, it can be a little tough for them to understand the requirements. And I think that there's times where if you're very, he you know, heavily involved in a guard, it can make your employer question your availability. And then after a while, it makes it kind of hard for them to fully trusting you because you might not necessarily be there when they need you to be there. Um, and that's kind of why I was saying that I felt like I was like a fork in the road because, you know, they're moving to New York under the premise that, you know, he's going to be here to working, you know, doing a great job. But then all of a sudden I'm gone for 18 months. So it, it can be a little challenging for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I can imagine such a challenging position um, to be in and appreciate your thoughts on that. Natalie, I think you have a very interesting perspective as well as not only a woman that served in the military, but also a woman that served in the branch of military that by percentage has the lowest um, number of women. And I think something I just never quite got my mind around is particularly when you look at the senior leadership of the military, there are so few women across all five branches. Just curious on your thoughts on why that is whether women are self-selecting out of the military at a certain point because they feel that they can't balance the demands of the military with goals like having kids, having a family. Are there gender biases at play? What are those factors involved that are stopping these women from reaching those top leadership positions? Man, that's, that's a rich question. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's, 
I think there's a lot of factors. I think, you know, I was obviously a female in the Marine Corps and as a, as a woman officer, I want to say like my demographic was around 1% of the entire Marine Corps. Um, I think the military is a world where your life and your career is not your own because ultimately you serve at the direction of the president of the United States and you serve the American people. Um, I know for me personally, I was just gone all the time. I was just gone for four years. Um, I was, I was away from my family. Um, I spent, we spent about a year training in the desert off and on. And then, and then when I deployed. And so by the time I got back, I knew that I wanted to have more control in my career. And so that was one of the big reasons why I chose to leave the Marine Corps um, was just being able to have that control and to be able to, you know, pick and choose what I do next. Um, I think that's a factor. I think the higher up you get in rank, the harder it is to balance personal demands, especially if you have a partner who is also active duty. Um, and I know the women that I knew in the military, mo- the ones of the ones who were married, most of their spouses were also active duty service members. And so when you think about that in the context of, um, you know, having a relationship and raising a family, I I think it's hard enough when one spouse serves, it's even harder when two spouses serve. And then finally, I just think a lot of women um, self-select out. It's, it's something that I chose to do for a variety of reasons. Um, But yeah, I hope, I hope I answered your question. I just think it's, it's an incredibly, I think there's a lot of factors that drive it and some of it's personal, some of it's organizational. and some of it is cultural as well. I, I totally agree. I think, yeah, it's not one factor. There are so many things that go into it. Do you think about whether it's your own experience or just in speaking to other women that have served? Are there anything on the, the side of the, the branches? Are there things that they could be doing to better serve the women within their ranks? Are, are there ways that the military is falling short in in making sure these women are promoted or getting opportunities, just any thoughts there on ways that the military could better serve the women within its ranks? I think, I think when push comes to shove, as long as you're able to do your job and do it well, nobody really cares what you look like. At least that was my experience. Um, And I think that's one of the beautiful and unique things about the military I think there are a lot of challenges when you're not actively doing your job and you're out of uniform where you maybe need to be a little bit more careful in terms of how you conduct yourself um, off base when you're not on the job that um, maybe, does, maybe doesn't necessarily translate to men. I don't want to speak for them, but I know um, I think the the biggest challenge for me at least was kind of the social aspect of things where you spend a lot of time with people, you get to know them very, very well. And then when you're out of uniform, um, word travels fast. And so that was something that I had to be very, very careful with um, when I, when I was socializing with people. So I don't really know how, 
how the military could change that necessarily. But I do think that it's something that people just need to be aware of both men and women. Um, and I think again, like as a female in the Marine Corps, one thing I did learn was how to advocate for myself. Um, and, and that is something that I've been able to take with me, even though it's been several years since I've gotten out. And Ben, I'd love to hear more about your experience as a civil affairs officer as, as well. I think it's such an interesting role in that um, you have that exposure to the civilian side of these international engagements. What was your experience? Well, for listeners that might not be familiar, can you talk at a high level about the role of a civil affairs officer? And then what did that look like in a day-to-day capacity for you? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's pretty unique. Uh, and the army, uh, is, you know, is a very big place. There's, you know, there's infantrymen, there's logistics, there's people like myself, people like Asher. And, you know, it's one of the things is there's, there's lots of different kind of tribes. And even in the special operations side of the house, there's, there's several different tribes and we all kind of have different jobs. Civil affairs is, uh, very small. It's, uh, like, you know, active duty civil affairs, uh, guys and gals. There's like, I think like 1500, maybe. Uh, even fewer officers. And the, the tagline is, um, you know, identify and address drivers of instability within austere communities by developing programmatic solutions, you know. And so to unpack that a little bit, uh, you know, what we would be doing is we'd be deploying to kind of our, you know, our host nation partners, you know, for instance, some place like Georgia, where we as a nation have a strategic interest and, we would be going around to communities in the country and we would say, okay, so, you know, what we really need to do is to develop a sense and get a finger on the pulse of what is going on within these communities. Uh, And that could be for a variety of reasons. It could be for, you know, this place might be ripe for radicalization or it's having lots of problems with essential services. And that for some reason is causing some tension between this community and the central government. So our role would be to, you know, identify our partners within within those countries. So, for instance, we worked out of the embassies. We worked out of the defense attaché's office. So we work for the Department of Defense. And the embassies are run by the Department of State and USAID. So USAID, Department of Defense, and Department of State have a development, you know, have development objectives. We as defense have a strategic objective. The host nation has all of their country objectives and then aid organizations obviously have development goals as well. So the science would be to identify commonalities within these, within these objective sets. And then, you know, the art is to kind of develop programs that would kind of satisfy, you know, cross across these organizations, across these initiative sets. And so that's also a little bit confusing. So as an example, um, we partnered with the the Japanese embassy in Georgia uh, to revamp, refurbish, rework uh, this women's health center in a place called Akapsike, Georgia, which is on the plains of Georgia, right above Armenia. And this is important for a lot of reasons. Georgian you know, the, the Eastern European kind of societies in general have a real problem with the role of women in their, in their communities. So they don't get a lot of healthcare. So that's an issue. 
you know, we partnered with these aid organizations that are just doing that specifically. The Japanese embassy wants to increase their presence in the area. We as Americans want to increase our presence in the area. So we saw this project as a really good opportunity to align all of those parties, align all those groups and do something really good for that area. You know, and obviously there's, there's all kinds of other things that go into it. It's, it's, it's part of a much larger strategic framework of, you know, other kind of opportunities around that country that we're working on at the same time. And, you know, that's, that's kind of, that was what we spent most of our time doing. And the day to day would be to, you know, develop these opportunities and then also think a lot about transition because as soldiers, like we're there for the long or for the shortest time, you know, Georgia's always there, like that's their country. So we have got to put them highest in the list of priorities of what they need, their needs met, you know, and then there's Department of State who's been there for a very long time as well. So, you know, I'm there for six months at a time. So I'm constantly thinking, I'm constantly evaluating, like, how can we make sure that this program stays, you know, has the staying power that, you know, the next team that follows on is going to be able to pick it up where I left off. And then when I come back in a year, I hope it's not broken and I can't, you know, I don't have too much damage control to do. And, and, you know, we're, we're developing these kind of enduring missions in these countries. Um, so hopefully that gives you a little better sense of, of what we were doing. Um, but I do find a lot of commonalities among myself and, and Asher and Natalie and, and kind of how I think about the military and how I thought about getting out. But I really did uh, enjoy, uh, enjoy my time as a, as a team leader over there. That's great. And and you mentioned, um, yeah, kind of that transition afterwards of of getting out. And that is something I wanted to touch on. I recently read a book um, by a psychologist focused on military members returning home from deployment. And I think his point was that um, we do so much training for soldiers before they leave for deployment. And that's not necessarily matched when they come home, that it's not a fair expectation to think that overnight they're just going to adapt back to um, American life, that when these men and women are deployed, they're going to experience very high highs of that camaraderie, that friendship, um, the the mentorship that they experience in those close relationships abroad. And then um, also the low lows of very traumatic, very difficult experiences. And then to have someone go through that and to come home and to have the expectation that they're just going to return back to civilian life overnight is maybe not fair. And so I think the author's point was that as a, as a society, we need to do better at supporting these um, men and women that are returning home from deployments. And I think the disconnect there might be that for a lot of Americans, they want to support these uh, veterans and military members that are returning home from deployment, but it, it seems to be... Um, kind of it's so far removed from their reality that they're just not sure what the right thing to do mm -hmm. is or what the right thing to say is. If someone came up to you and said, my friend came home um, from deployment six months ago and I want to be a good friend, I want to be a supporter, but I'm just not sure what to say. I'm not sure what to do. I'm not sure if I shouldn't say something. What what would be your advice for that person? Um. Well, first of all, I would say, you know, the the military is very very good at sending people overseas and very bad at bringing them home. So I, I agree with with uh, with that point uh, entirely. And I think one of the one of the issues is that like you know it's a 
that that cycle starts immediately upon re-entry to the United States. So like you have those soldiers and, and Marines and airmen and sailors that like will just in, like immediately start training back up for for the next thing, you know. And and that's an issue that creates a lot of issues because there's not a lot of time to kind of reassess and evaluate your mental state. And so, you know, for for those individuals that really that really do want to help, I mean, there's there's lots and lots of different ways to a like donate to organizations that can help and and kind of destigmatize uh, mental health for returning returning uh, service members, um, mental health issues for returning you know service members, and I think kind of like bringing those issues to the forefront, kind of talking about them and saying like, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, returning service members, they're like somebody else. Like it's, they're not like people, like we're, you know, they're just people. Like you talk, you would talk to that person, like you would talk to your friend because there's, you know, it's a very different job. It's a unique job, but you still, you know, you experience that same set of emotions and those things that work for your friends when they're going through kind of depression and they're going through anxious times, like, they also work for us too, you know? So it's a very, I would say it's a very similar set of recommendations. It's like, Hey, you know, take some time for yourself, you know, start being more social, start, you know, reaching out to friends more often. And then if you need to, you need to go to mental health and like, you need to go get therapy and like talk to me. I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of therapy. Like I do it. I think everybody should. And it's just like one of those things that, you know, I think that yes, it would be, amazing if we had more civilian support but i think that that support really does need to start at the government level really does need to start in the military um which is something i would say like so i guess in summary i would say help your friend out talk to them like a person you know give them all the recommendations you give them anybody else but then also write your congressman and say hey man or hey you know person like we this is something that's really important to me this is something that I think that, you know, we ask these people to go over and we ask them to represent us and, and then come back and be safe and, and do it again in like a year. They need help. And what we're doing right now isn't really working all that well. Natalie Nasher, anything to add there? I think Bennett summed it up really well. Um, I think there's just an importance of listening. Um, Again, like people are very, very respectful of military service, but I do think that there are a lot of preconceived notions about the military that exist, um, due in large part to the fact that unlike World War II, unlike Vietnam, where everybody had, you know, friend, family member, spouse, what have you that served, like that's not really the case anymore. And yeah, so I think... You know, like as service members and as veterans, we deal um, with some like pretty heavy stuff, um, either like directly or indirectly. And I think there's almost like a, a gulf, like a wide gulf um, where it's very difficult to talk to people that don't understand that world. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I just I just think like listen and, and try to empathize, try to sympathize. Um, I think, I think people are like fundamentally like rooted in, in good intent. Um, but I do think that there is a gap that exists between, for lack of a better word, like civilians and service members. And I, I think it starts by just like talking and like listening about your experiences.
Yeah, sure. That was perfect. Both answers. I can't top either. They've got it. Um, just provide, you know, a helping hand. Just be willing to listen because it's it's tough. You know, you go to a foreign location. You're eight hours away or so from anyone you care about. You're missing weddings. You're missing funerals. You know, just just be willing to listen and just help out. Even if you don't understand the plight that, that the serviceman is going through, just, you know, be there to help out. The way we all met was through the Fertitta Veterans Program last fall. Um, and just for listeners to, that may not be as familiar, just to give a little bit of um, a background, in 2016, Stern alumnus Lorenzo Fertitta and his brother Frank Fertitta established the, vet, uh, the Fertitta Veterans Program in recognition of the significant transition veterans face in going from the military to business school. And there are kind of two components of the program. The first is a... Um, the Fertitta Veterans Scholarship, was, which is a half-tuition scholarship, which I know we're all um, very grateful for. And then the second half of the program is um, kind of a summer start experience where we all arrived on campus last fall six weeks ahead of the rest of our class. And we took um, statistics and accounting together and also had the opportunity to visit some offices of companies in the city like Google, Boston Consulting Group, JP Morgan, and others. We'd love to hear more from all of you about how you found the um, the, the Fertitta Veterans Program last year and, and just your experience in general as a veteran at Stern. Sure. So, I, I mean, I kind of heard about it through just like, um, like MB, like search Googling, like best MBA veteran programs, basically, and, you know, getting that list. And then um, I identified it as one of my target schools because I was like, well, New York is great. Love New York. Got my brother up there. Um, you know, it's a full merit scholarship. I mean, it's like an excellent opportunity um, to go to, to, to NYU. Um, and uh, I mean, I found it to be amazing. I tell people all the time that it's probably one of the better, I mean, it's probably the best veteran program in, in the States or in, at, the, at the best business schools. Um, and I also, you know, I also got to meet all of you and then 20 other people that I got to struggle through accounting and, and, uh, and statistics with, uh, you know, and that was, that was fun for, you know, that was, you know, a type of fun, I would call it. Um, but, um, you know, that was, that was one of the better, like, that is something that I'll really look back on and say, you know, that was really important to developing an understanding of, you know, what is out there, because that was one of my major kind of wants. I just really needed to get much more exposure. And then the Friday, you know, events where we would go around, meet vets at other, um, you know, at the corporate offices and, and kind of get them and get like kind of the, the real story that was really important too. So all around, just like a great, great, uh, great program. And then rolling into the fall semester with a really tight knit group was also great too. So, you know, you get to start meeting people, but then you also have the relative kind of safety and, and you know, security blanket of, of already having a group of uh, a really tight knit group of about 24 really good people. Yeah, I think um, similar, to, similar to Bennett, I knew that I wanted to go to grad school. Um, so I did like the Veteran Perspective Student Day at Stern a couple years ago where they did uh, kind of the rundown of the Fertitta program, uh, which I thought was extraordinary because it, you know, is a scholarship for anybody regardless of GI Bill eligibility. And so I think, you know, when we think about uh, business school programs, the thing that really struck out about 
Stern to me was the fact that it puts its money where its mouth is um, when it comes to veterans. And then even when we think about the way that the summer is organized, I think that, you know, it's, it's clearly designed in such a way with veterans in mind, knowing what our strengths are and knowing um, where we might need a little bit more assistance. Um, I think getting... <laughs> No, I think, you know, getting statistics and accounting done, you know, with with a group of fellow patriots um, was outstanding. And, you know, more along those lines, I think, too, you know, half our class is just coming from active duty. And so there's kind of a social transition that happens there. And so having Mm -hmm. that time with a group of veterans to kind of think about your next steps before fall. Um, I think was really invaluable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's always good to be around like-minded individuals, you know. And the the program provided like a great opportunity to just reacclimate to an environment of academia because you know we've been out of school for so long, and so you know the extra focus on accounting and stats, you know the the corporate visits. I remember going to McKinsey and realizing that I had no clue what consulting was until that day. Like it was like, oh wow, this is what you guys do. Yeah. Um, and I know like for me, I've been working in the civilian sector, but I saw the value that provided people who were just fresh off of active duty and just didn't know how to navigate the social environment of just like corporate America. Um, and then the flexibility of going into the fall semester, having two classes under your belt, you have reduced course load, you can focus more on recruiting if need be. You know, the program to me was just fantastic. And I think what's natural for veterans, even after their separation, is that they continue to seek ways to stay involved, take on leadership positions. So I did want to touch on all of your involvement in Stern during your time at school. Asher, you are the president of the Association of Hispanic and Black um, Business Students here at, at Stern. And I imagine when you took over that role in the spring, you probably didn't quite expect that this year would be turning out the way it has in terms of hybrid learning and some small socially distanced in-person gatherings, but but no kind of larger social gatherings. And I'm thinking about those first year ABBA students. How do you make sure that they still feel that sense of community, both within ABBAs and within um, kind of the Stern community at large, even though it is such a different environment this year? That's a great question because it's a huge challenge. You know, obvious for me was my first exposure to NYU Stern. They had an event called Discover Stern, October 2018. I went there, you know, fell in love with the program. You know, compared to some other schools I was looking at, I noticed, you know, tangible, you know, relationships. You know, these people were going to leave school and be friends for life. And I knew I wanted to be part of that. So that was a big focus of mine kind of coming into the program. You know, I was like, I got to, you know, be a part of obvious. And, you know, I enjoyed it so much that I ran for, for co-president. So, you know, 2020 pandemic hits and it's, you know, it's, it's disappointing. You have all these grandiose plans, what you want to do for the club, and you can't really realize it to the same degree. Um, I will say that I think that we have adjusted, you know, well professionally, but as far as like, you know, we wanted to start an undergrad mentorship to kind of, you know, help the undergrad NYU students kind of learn more about the MBA programs. That's off the ground. We wanted to expand the club to allies and have events like book clubs and things like that. You know, that's off the ground. That's been successful. Um, but other things like social events, it, it's tough because you have to get really creative and have to stay within school guidelines in regards to what you can do. So that area, I think we can definitely improve on. Um, but it's it's been it's been challenging. And then you have the summer, which brought its own, you know, tough moments 
And so kind of using that as a platform to, you know, brief the dean on how we can bring more minorities into the program. You know, looking at current curriculum and saying like, hey, we don't see ourselves in this, in this curriculum. How can we improve the business cases? How can we improve, you know, what's going on in terms of orientation and, and, and you know, putting ourselves in, again in the program? So, you know, I think we've done good there, but it's definitely an ongoing challenge. And Natalie, you've been quite involved during your time at CERN in the Leadership Accelerator, which is kind of a department on campus that does a lot of programming, both academically and in a more extracurricular manner in terms of helping students develop those leadership skills. Can you talk a little bit more both about your involvement in the program and just in general, what kind of leadership opportunities CERN offers to students? Yeah, definitely. Um, so the Leadership Accelerator is fairly new, and it was founded to kind of develop um, simulations, experiences, etc. that are kind of hands-on, um, where you learn by doing rather than by learning in a classroom. Um, you know, like as veterans, I think kind of perspective and leadership is something that we all bring to the table, and we've all learned those lessons um, by doing them. Um, rather than, you know, reading cases and learning about them in the classroom. And so that's really um, what kind of prompted the, the founding of the Leadership Accelerator. Um, within that, there's a program called Leadership Fellows, where um, students work with a mentor throughout the year to help kind of better hone in on, you know, their personal brand, leadership challenges. Um, there's a series of speakers as well, who will come and talk to you about their experiences leading. So that's been um, really, really cool. And then um, I'm also working on uh, developing a virtual product launch simulation for the spring. Um, just again, you know, we've kind of had to adapt and overcome um, with everything being virtual, but I think virtual in many respects is here to stay. And so we're, we're excited to kind of build that out and hopefully launch it um, sometime in April for, you know, where students will work cross-functionally um, to launch, you know, a new, a new product for a, a fictional business. Um, so more to come on that, but I am excited for it. That's great. I, I love seeing a vet involved in the Leadership Accelerator because I think um, you and other vets on campus have such a unique leadership perspective to bring. Um, so really excited about the work that you're doing there. And Bennett, I wanted to talk to you about your summer internship experience. You worked with Ubora Advisors, which is a investment firm that specifically focuses in Africa and the Middle East, if I understand correctly. And please um, correct me um, if I'm missing anything there. But kind of in contrast to Asher and Natalie, Asher um, interned at Credit Suisse, Natalie at Deloitte. So those very classic business school type roles was just curious since you were more non-traditional, curious to hear more about that experience. Sure. So, uh, you know, I kind of always looked at Stern as a, as a two-year process. So one of the things that I thought was really important for me, especially, you know, getting into business school after eight years and kind of not really having a really good sense of, of everything that's out there is I wanted to kind of challenge my assumptions around a variety of industries. I wanted to, you know, see what I liked and what I didn't. Um, so I, you know, kind of waited it out and like really, really kind of dug around last, last uh, semester, unfortunately, then the coronavirus hit and like screwed everything up. 
Um, but what was great was uh, Stern developed the Sternworks program, which uh, so big major props to the uh, the Office of Student Engagement for for coming through on that. And and honestly, that was you know lifesaver for I know a lot of a lot of people in the same position as me. But um, what what it did uh, was provide this really good opportunity to work um, at Ubora. So this was excellent because it was again something that I really like. I love working in small teams. My civil affairs teams were between two and four people, so I like love that like really tight bond environment. So I worked with uh, one guy, CEO Niagaka and Giri, and we were just like, okay, like this is what we'd like to do. We'd like to focus on Africa and the Middle East. We'd like to hit sustainable finance. We'd like to hit ESG. We'd like to hit you know all of these different kind of you know intellectually in, in my mind kind of like intellectually stimulating kind of finance com components but then also it's a startup so you're building a business too um and you know you're developing a sense of what's the value proposition like what should our strategic focus be and like how do we you know you know stack rank our skill set and we say okay these are the things that we're really really good at and like so what can we offer and you know how are we going to make that uh, into a viable business opportunity. Luckily, Niagaka is very experienced and also much more experienced than I am. So he, you know, he developed. So he has a lot of the, uh, a lot of the horsepower. But I also, uh, I think um, that you know what I, what ended up bringing to the table there was my experience at the startup and my kind of leadership experience, like we've been talking about as well, just kind of uh, to to help build that out. So. Um, it's been a great opportunity. Uh, you know, I'd love to work there after after Stern. I think that 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 may be what I end up doing. Um, but I, but what I, the the major benefit to me was I got a really really well developed sense of what's out there and a really well developed sense of what I like. Um, so I'm uh, very much looking forward to the future. And you're also quite involved with student government on campus. And kind of similar question to what we were chatting about with Asher. I'm sure that's been a pretty, it's a unique time to be involved in student government during um, everything that's going on. How has that experience been for you? Yeah, um, it's been great. So uh, I work at, I'm the Stern Senator. Um, so that's a position within SGOV. Uh, that's been, uh, that's been pretty interesting. So what kind of in summary, what you do there is uh, you represent Stern on the NYU student government. NYU is a, a huge place. There's 55,000 uh, students here, right? And, uh, you know, the majority of them are actually undergrads. And Stern is one of the smaller schools. But what we do is uh, we do punch above our weight in terms of um, perspective and professional experience. So, you know, it has been a bit of a bowl in the china shop, you know, because what we're doing, like what the student government is is kind of built for is to make sure the voices of the students are heard and where problems are being addressed. And so we have all these different kind of affinity groups within NYU in general, and they all have their, you know, a variety of issues. And um, so we have a lot of meetings. We talk about that a lot. And then we talk about the response of the school and how it affects the daily lives of students. Um, so, you know, we've been spending a lot of time doing that. Um, so it's a lot, a lot, a lot of Zoom and it's a lot of voting on different proposals for how we can best suit the, you know, changes to the academic schedule or changes to um, any kind of, uh, you know, I guess accessibility to the buildings and dorms, stuff like that, like stuff that really doesn't affect us as graduate students. But, you know, from an institutional perspective, it is, you know, it's, it's, it's very powerful. It's a very powerful kind of force within 
um, you know, the student body. It's been a, it's been cool. And also when you graduate from the Fertitta program, you're just really good friends with everybody that's a veteran. And I nearly needed to expand my network a little bit. So got into that, got into the uh, Stern Policy Forum. I have an interest in, you know, diplomacy and, and policy in general. So I think, uh, I think between those two things, it, you know, it, it scratches an itch for me. Um, and I don't have to talk about business all the time. Um, so it's been a, it's been great. Yeah, it sounds like a really interesting way to just explore kind of everything that makes up a higher education institution beyond just the classes that we're in. There's a lot going on behind the scenes and to kind of pull back the curtain and get to yeah. see some of that must be really interesting. Definitely, definitely. It's, I mean, NYU is, is, is a massive institution. There's, I was, I was, I mean, I'm amazed. It's got like, I mean, the footprint is enormous. We have, um, Institutions here, obviously New York, Brooklyn, Shanghai, Dubai, all, all over the place. So um, it's a it's a very complex institution. And I know we all we all have to wrap up soon. We have classes. We're in the middle of midterm, so don't want to steal too much time away from all of you. But did just want to throw out some some quick answer questions before we wrap up here. Um, so, question for all of you: What's been your favorite class at Stern? Ooh. Anything with Professor Yo. He's a yeah. he's our accounting professor over the summer, and I will end with a specialization in accounting because I have taken slash will take all of his classes. He's great. Yeah, yeah he's fantastic. Um, I'll third that, and also throw out Professor Demoderin for corporate finance and valuation. Yeah, uh, I'll go with Oaken. I'll take every class that he offers here if I can. He's um he's a little bit of advice of character, but he's a great professor. Um, I've enjoyed every minute of his classes. He's uh you know he does mostly the um, entrepreneurship classes, so foundation of entrepreneurship has been excellent. Uh, managing a grown company was also excellent. And I'll, I'll I'll continue to. Um, I'm not sure what kind of specialization will get me, but maybe there's like an Oaken specialization or something like that I can pull out of. That. I think it's on there. I think I saw it the other day. All right, cool. So I gotta relook the website. <laughs> And last question, what do you think, whether it's at Stern or just in general, what is the biggest misconception people have about veterans or the veteran community? I think, I think uh, there's a preconceived notion about the military and the type of person that joins the military and the types of experiences that a person has in the military. Um, and I, I mean, I, I think like we're all people at the end of the day. And, and while we have some like wildly different experiences, for me, I would posit that let, let's not let those preconceptions like get in the way of getting to know veterans um, mm -hmm. as people. Yeah. Yeah. We're not I'll, as, uh, um, Oh, go ahead. All right. I, I'll go. Um, I would say that, uh, that like, you know, at a high level, I think that a lot of people think that, you know, veterans think of themselves as, <clears throat> you know, the greatest thing that I did in my life and that I'm going to do is like be a veteran. And that's just, that's just like not true. Veteran is, is a young person, you know, being a, a service member is a young person's game. I mean, you have a lot of time after you get out, even if you go for 20 years, go, you know, you get in at 18, you get out at 38, like you have a lot of time left. And so I think it's, you know, just challenging that, you know, that perception of like, this is what that person is, is like a vet. It's like, no, like that person has that experience. 
but they also have all these great skills that they can apply elsewhere. And so, you know, breaking down that wall, I think is, is really important. And, um, and I wish that something that people were a little bit more open to, I suppose. Yeah. You know, we're not as, um, intimidating as we might seem, you know, feel free to, to approach us, um, you know, feel free to take it past, you know, thank you for your, for your service, you know, you know, feel free to kind of, you know, engage the conversation and learn more about our experiences. Cause you never know when somebody might need, you know, an ear. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I've just, not only someone from the veterans community, but I think in general, particularly in today's world, things can seem so divisive, but just being um, kind of willing to listen to other people's perspectives and other people's experiences can can go so far for that person. Um, so really appreciate that thought and really appreciate Asher, Bennett, and Natalie, you being with us here today. I know you have very busy schedules, so appreciate you taking the time out of the day to be here with us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having me.